0: Kaplan, a TV writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy. And I'm
1: Taylor Carmen, a professor at Barnard College, Columbia University. And I lecture and write books on things like existentialism and phenomenology and the meaning of life.
0: Phenomenology and the meaning of life. That's cool. Yeah, both. And this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them. And it's a philosophy podcast where Taylor and I look at terrifying questions and we think about them and we're trying to find our way to a place where you and me. And us and you can feel courageous using philosophy <laughs> so what is our terrifying question this week Eric? okay, so this is a question which is like do we need other people and, and I think this is possibly has to do with um attachment theory and my own early childhood ah. I can't decide which answer I find terrifying okay. yes or no <laughs> um, in certain moods yeah. I find the idea that I need people terrifying yeah. And in certain moods, I find the idea that I don't need people lonely and terrifying, which means I'm hard to satisfy. But that's why I wanted to talk about this with you, Taylor. (laughs) They are both terrifying. I
1: think... If either one of those is true, it's terrifying for different reasons. Do you know about attachment theory? I've heard of it, and I've heard little fragments and bits and pieces. If you'd ask me to tell you what it was, I couldn't, but it'll sound familiar. But why don't you hum a few bars? Well,
0: it's sort of the Darwinian insights of two psychologists, uh, Bowlby and Ainsworth. And they say that the job one for an infant is to get the primary person in their environment to take care of them.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And... If that doesn't go well, or, per, or you know, well enough, yeah. that's actually uh, Bowlesby's term of art, good enough parenting. If uh-huh. it doesn't go well enough, then you have various sort of attachment disorders. Uh, yeah. And I'm not sure which one I have, but I think I have one of them. And I think it affects how I do philosophy. Because uh-huh. it has to do with sort of like not feeling, like not trusting myself, not trusting other people, not trusting the whole setup. And I think when I'm doing philosophy, in some sense, I'm trying to treat my attachment disorder. Interesting. So how is how does the treatment work? You're treating it by just... Well, trying to th- be aware of it, you know, just be aware that, like, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant, and then trying... I- I'm not going to talk about my own, no, my no. own okay. treatment on a podcast, I don't want to hear that, but... um <laughs> Okay, what, didn't, what I didn't I, mean I, to pry. Yeah. I do, th- no, 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 I, in some other time, some other place, okay. but I do think in some sense um there's an interesting worth examining question about the relationship between philosophy and the individual philosophers psychology. Oh, absolutely. You know, I was recently
1: uh, teaching Kierkegaard in my undergraduate seminar. And all this talk about God opening his arms, or Christ, he says, opening his arms and saying, come unto me, come unto me. I'm thinking, man, that's his father. It's so obvious. Mm-hmm. It's like a very psychologically fraught stuff about his father's acceptance and his relation to his father. It's a little moment of
0: psychoanalytic clarity. I thought, oh, the poor guy, that's what he was going through. Right. And uh, yet I also uh, kind of feel that the cracks are where the light comes through. That, like, yeah. like just because... Yeah. To think you need to have some kind of a wound that makes you think doesn't mean the thinking is worthless. No, not at all. No, not at all. Absolutely. But it was poignant. Yeah, poor Kierkegaard. And Nietzsche,
1: yeah, he he was an unhappy puppy. Yeah, Nietzsche says something like, every philosophical system is a kind of unconscious memoir, a confession of the author. And there's something right about that. It's an overstatement. Uh-huh. but um,
0: Oh, I was, another Nietzsche quote. Uh-huh. Uh, the degree and kind of a man's sexuality reached down to the very depth of his being. Ah, uh-huh. yeah.
1: that's uh, Interesting. Freud was reading a lot of Nietzsche, I think. He was uh, like, yes. <laughs> that's I right. I think that's true, Nietzsche. <laughs> um, so the attachment thing seems absolutely right. I've heard speculation that psychopaths may be, you know, dangerous, violent psychopaths maybe had some something go horribly wrong in early early infancy or childhood where it completely messed up their relationships to other people and conscience. It is all speculative, but somebody's somebody who's dealt with a lot of them who's in a way very sympathetic because she doesn't say contrary to what a lot of people say about violent psychopaths, which is they're just evil. And it's not really a mental illness. It's just really bad, bad, bad. But she thinks that the really bad stuff comes out of some really, really terribly abusive, traumatic stuff going on in very early childhood. And that would be interesting if it weren't kind of an innate disposition, but you got really screwed Who is she? Who thinks that? Oh, it's a, I, you know, I just thought of this, and I don't know the name. It's, it's a documentary okay. I was watching about – she's controversial because, of course, prosecutors – are saying this is nothing but excuse-making because these people are really manipulative and they're tricking her into thinking they've got deep psychological problems, but it's all just an evil charade because they are just heartless, you know, killers. Um, But she thinks you know, she thinks there's an explanation for these phenomena, these syndromes um, somehow. Yeah, it'd be pretty weird if there weren't. Yeah, right, if it weren't, (laughs) it would be just, here's another episode for us, terrifying thought, Right. is maybe psychopaths, you know, Ted Bundy type characters who maybe seem normal in every way other than that they kill people, maybe that's just a total fluke of a kind of twist in the DNA or the brain that makes them just off the scale of so, and that's just like seems like a random flip of the switch. It's terrifying to think it could have no particular interesting cause, but it's just a random thing that happens. Right, I mean, it's a little more comforting to think you know you could avoid this <laughs> if you just take care of kids like with as you say good enough parenting early on uh right it seems right. to me yeah. like I'll, I'll just cut to the chase about my opinion about I, it seems like there's no such thing as self-sufficiency or not needing other people we're totally interdependent we're like uh it can't be that we could ever not need people we're totally dependent on the, everybody else epistemically and emotionally and materially we're totally intertwined, so, aren't we?
0: Well, okay, so let's pursue a defeated emperor strategy. I think physically we're intertwined physically, we need to be cared for by each other and the notion that um only by looking at sort of like healthy autonomous people who are doing pretty well financially only by like focusing on a very unusual subset of the population, could you think for a second that people don't physically need care from each other? Because when we're young, when we're old, the times when we're disabled, everybody needs, when during a disaster, everybody needs care. So let's just stipulate that and say, if there's an interesting way in which we're self-reliant, it's not that. And and to underline it, uh, most
1: of us couldn't even feed ourselves if we were left to our own devices. I mean, you have food delivered right. to you, supermarkets and restaurants. If you were on your own in the woods, you'd starve, probably. Okay, so. true, true.
0: Oh. I would. I certainly would. <laughs> um, um, so I, w- I want to read, um, as a witness for the for this pro-self-reliance position, okay. uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Oh, okay. And he's got this essay self-reliance uh-huh. and, I, and i'll re- now read it okay um we usually don't yeah. read stuff but but this is sonorous 19th century prose yeah. he would fill auditoriums uh with his speeches so so let's hear a little bit of it okay i read the other day some verses written by an eminent painter which were original and not conventional the soul always hears an admonition in such lines let the subject be what it may The sentiment they instill is of more value than any thought they may contain. To believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. Speak your latent conviction, and it shall be the universal sense, for the inmost in due time becomes the outmost, and our first thought is rendered back to us by the trumpets of the last judgment. A man should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within, more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismisses without notice his thought, because it is his. In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. Now, about cool things about that, do you find that this thought itself... Feels like your own rejected thought returning to you with a certain alienated majesty. Rejected, yes. <laughs> it was rejected. Cause...
1: I mean, yes. It, there's an echo in that of something I've thought too. But I have to say, I I've never been an Emerson fan. I just I rebel at most of this. Uh, I just find
0: it. And what it's is it that, of... that plucks your nerves about it?
1: I think it's precious and kind of smug and sentimental and not very plausible. I mean, speak your latent conviction and it shall be the universal sense. Really? Um, Why should I believe that? It seems to me a lot of my latent convictions are idiosyncratic and right or wrong, but not why they're going to be the universal sense. And our first thought is rendered back to us. By the trumpets of the last judgment? That's so pompous and high highfalutin about my own first thought. It seems like so self-aggrandizing and overblown and implausible that it just makes me cringe. I just don't like it at all. You think it's cringy? Yeah, I think it's totally cringy. Not that everything is consistently wrong with it. But, I mean, what I do like, that one little bit that you were asking about, like an echo of your own thoughts, that... Is a real phenomenon. And I often have that experience reading a great text. It's very much like this says really well and clearly something I had a kind of inkling of. So there's a sort of experience of, um, if not quite deja vu, but like it kindles something that I thought, oh, I've kind of thought something like that. And so there's that phenomenon. All right. But I have no confidence that my first thought or my latent thought or anything like that is going to be ultimately vindicated. I mean, why should it be?
0: Well, I mean he does he does sort of say in that famous passage later on in this essay I would like to write whim w h i m whim on the doorpost of my house I hope it won't be whim ultimately but the day can't be spent in explaining so I, I don't think he's denying that um in life your ideas might become deepened but I mean he also says self aversion is self reliance is the aversion of conformity that there's something that he thinks is wrong with just accepting what everybody else thinks marriage is, love is, art is, that he feels like you should sort of put some skin in the game. You should figure it out for yourself. But I don't think that means figuring it out for yourself doesn't mean figuring it out by living your life. Right. Um, yeah. I think.
1: I think, I guess so too, but the overall direction of it is puffing up the self-reliance. I mean, it's like so hyperbolic. The last, the next to the last sentence, I have the text in front of me too. It just happens. We didn't really plan this, although I think I might have mentioned Emerson a few days ago to you. But, and, and you... Quoted him not too long ago about the hobgoblin of little minds. Not oh, the hobgoblin or
0: bugbear. No, oh, what, whatever. One, yeah.
1: Including me. <laughs> and you said of small minds, and in fact, it's little minds. So there you go. It's little minds. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the next to the last sentence of this essay nothing can bring you peace but yourself. I don't like that. What, nothing but myself can bring me peace? What a
0: hopeless maxim that is. Jeez. Well, so let's, let yeah. me ask then if you're, yeah. you're going to beat the drum for other people, what are you hoping to get from other people?
1: Well, I think without them, I would drown. I mean, I think I'm so... T- so there's a fact of the matter. There's a sort of the factual question and the sort of normative question. I think given that we're totally intertwined and interlocked, there is a genuine sort of balance.
0: Let the record show that Taylor is holding his <laughs> fingers and interlocking them, making as if to I'm inter- interlock,
1: illustrating yeah. my point for the hearing impaired. Yes, when this comes to YouTube, yeah. you'll be
0: able to see exactly. that anyway going.
1: <laughs> so, given that the fact of the matter is that we are totally in the same web. I mean, even to the point there, we wouldn't survive physically very long without each other. And the dark side of this that I sometimes think, I don't know if you've ever had this thought, I think of it when I see people being led away to prison in handcuffs or something like that, that, you know, it would only take four or five people around you to kill you. I mean, right. I mean, and the state can easily do that, you know. I mean, the right. the most dangerous people in the world, it only takes a few people to sort of put them in handcuffs and throw them in prison and that's it. So you are totally at the mercy of the people around you in terms of physical survival. And it probably would only
0: take four or five people to conspire to frame you for murder. That would be harder right? in some ways. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. You know some smart people. If they really had it in for you, they could probably pull it off. They
1: might, but they're also sort of dependent and vulnerable. And if they get caught, they're screwed too. So everybody's kind of right. you know, at everybody else's mercy. And so that's a frightening thought, I think. But I think it's true. Once we see that how pervasive that is, there are real questions about balancing something like autonomy and dependency, because I think we all need a little bit of both. And it's a delicate balancing act. But I think that has to be understood against a background of absolute total dependency.
0: Well, but okay, but let me let me let me um, reframe this a little bit. Let us say that one of the things we need from each other is not to murder us. Right. Do we need anything more interesting <laughs> well, well, or or important from each other than not to murder us? Well,
1: like I said, I think your food supply is, uh, you know, the result of a very complex economic okay. structure. So,
0: if we were all in um, in a society where a combination of human labor and robots took care of our physical needs and some sort of reciprocal agreement enforced by again <laughs> robots or police kept us from murdering each other yeah would that be enough or do we need something more interesting from each other well
1: it has to be sustained too the other thing i often think of is like um it's only because of a kind of it's not exactly tacit agreement but an institutionalized durable agreement that i'm led into the building in the apartment i live in and nobody prevents me from going in they could easily so I mean, there's a consensus that facilitates almost every aspect of my life. Okay,
0: so we need some degree of cooperation to keep normal stuff from happening, to have banks, to have places to stay. But like friendship, people say that a friend is a second self, that we're getting something from friendship that we wouldn't get from being alone. Do you think that's right? Oh, absolutely. It's right. What is it? What is it? That's Ah. that's what I like to to use this podcast and talk about, not not the sort of true... Pedestrian facts are like, in fact, we couldn't have a a guitar. (laughs) You know, there was no Ah, people who could make
1: guitars. Sociality has got these different levels, too. I mean, you can actually survive without anything like a close friend. You can just have acquaintances. It's lonely and it's not the best life, but it doesn't kill you. But the reason that solitary confinement is considered by many people to be a form of torture is that if you are really deprived of human contact you will start to lose your mind. I mean, it really destroys your thinking and your mental health. And it's really almost like a physical assault on your brain. See,
0: I feel like I could, if I had the choice between being vulnerable to being shivved by the general population (laughs) in a prison and being in solitary confinement, Like, I feel like I could try and write my own version of The Lord of the Rings in my mind. You may want to look into the effects of solitary confinement
1: on people a little bit further because it's extraordinarily destructive. You can't
0: just write, you can't write a poem in your mind and...
1: It's not that it's impossible and it may be that some people are more resilient and are able to cope with it more than others, but people literally go kind of crazy and they're, like I say, their mental health deteriorates. Do you
0: think you would go crazy?
1: I don't know. I really don't have much idea. I kind of have a fantasy that if I had enough books on the shelf, I could sort of manage. But I don't really know. I think I—I I actually think it's more than this. I don't know the medical literature on this, but I do think it actually damages your brain if you don't have some kind of social contact. Like,
0: would you rather, if supposing supposing the other professors have in fact framed you, <laughs> and you're, you're going you're going to the big house for ten years? It could happen. Would you rather? have um, the collected works of Heidegger or no books and a really obnoxious roommate? <laughs> um, I'd rather have the collected works of Heidegger. Right.
1: But it's easy for me to say that without anticipating what it would be like after two months or three months or six months. You
0: might get depressed and be like, I don't care about Heidegger anymore.
1: Definitely. Right, exactly. I might be so depressed and lonely. i would sorry to dwell on this really dark subject. But the other thing is that, you know, Staring at the walls. I mean, maybe if I could be out on my own in a sort of a nice, pleasant. Beach or something like that would be different. But you said on this podcast you hate the beach. I, I now do. You I, like the yeah, beach? I do. Uh-huh. But I would prefer it to I a prison cell. Finally nailed you on a contradiction <laughs> after ten weeks of trying. I would prefer it to a prison cell. But um, l- ask most prisoners whether they'd rather be in solitary confinement or with a general population. One of them, one of whom might knife them at any moment. I think right. they'd almost all prefer to be, you know, having
0: lunch and breakfast with some buddies and roll the dice with getting knifed rather than being alone. I think I'd rather be alone. Maybe 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 I'm I'm wildly overconfident about my abilities to withstand solitude. You might be a rare exception to the rule, but
1: uh, anyway. So, but let me put aside that because that's like yeah. I say rather bleak. And I do think actually it's time for us to take a little break. Okay. So we'll take a short break and come back to this question about: Do we need other people? Could we be self sufficient? What's more frightening? Being completely alone or being completely dependent, and we'll be back after this message.
0: Right. And if you can play Lead Bellies, um, some's got six months, some's got a solid year, but me and my buddy, we got a lifetime here on the mandolin. I think that'd be great. <laughs> I, will, I will try and okay. do that. Okay. And we're back. So you, you've you been giving a pretty naturalistic yeah. account of sociality. Right. And I guess I'm just wondering if there's more to it. Like on the theory that you've presented so far, you're like, well, I want to have some People that I rub shoulders against so I don't go insane, <laughs> and then I want to like not be murdered, and I wanna <laughs> be able to to have access to a you know a modern economy which requires um division of labor and so forth. But then when it comes to like your life as a thinker, yeah, do you need anybody? Or can you just having all these things checked off, do you then go home and do your thinking? Oh no. And the reason I ask is is yeah. thinking is your vocation. Yeah. So it's sort of the, for the sake of which your other stuff is yeah. is in place. That's right. But I think it's really social. It's really conversational. Okay. So that's interesting to me because that's what I think Emerson doesn't think. I think Emerson yeah. thinks yeah. The, the thing you ought to do is not accept the stuff you've been taught by your society, figure it out for yourself, bravely run the risk of thinking it for yourself. And that's where sociality will come from, because other people, when they hear you say it, that chord will vibrate in their souls as well, and you'll sort of realize you're all dealing with the same stuff. And you don't like that picture. I think it's hugely naive. I mean, it's just ridiculous okay. to think that you could just ignore
1: tradition in the society. You've been totally shaped by your language and your culture and your tradition. And and the other thing is, again, even conceding that, if we were to, to agree that, of course, there's some baseline of conditioning by history and culture and language and literature and all that it seems like you've got no a priori reason to put special confidence in whatever ideas pop into your head because some of them are bad and some of them are good and you won't know until you test them out with other people and see if they say that's nuts or that's crazy or that's interesting i mean you you are not the only judge of the quality of your ideas there's this slightly paradoxical thing i've often thought of you know when people say always do what you think is right there's something right about that but i also kind of want to say I don't know. I mean, if you think that, you know, shoplifting and embezzling money and, you know, randomly slugging people in the nose is right, then it's not that you should do that. You shouldn't maybe you shouldn't do what you think is right. You should think what's right is what's right. And so all this that kind of advice which just tells you to rely only on something that's entirely your own, I think on the face of it it's absurd. Well, to it, me
0: I guess I connected sort of to this issue of um like if you really like a movie or a work of art or let's say a particular way the sky looks in autumn Mm -hmm. that's really fundamental that you like it yeah and if you sort of go through life and you're like and they're like eric which do you like better autumn or winter and i'm like I don't know. What does everybody else think? Well, they all like autumn. Okay, <laughs> uh-huh. me too. That, that, there's something kind of cockeyed about oh, that. Sure. That, that yeah. if I'm always getting yeah. my judgments about what's most important by like polling the room, yeah. it seems to me that that's crazy. It is. But why is it crazy? Because uh, on your account, it seems like, no, that's sensible. You want to make sure, you want to make sure if in fact winter is, you know, whatever, autumn is the nicer season that you, get with the program and don't have a wrong answer about which season is right <laughs> no no what I think is that what you
1: need to do is participate in this communal collective effort of figuring out what's right and wrong and good and bad and preferable and the only way you can really participate is to just have your own opinions too so in other words if everybody was passive and waiting until then somebody else spoke nobody would ever say anything so we can't all just be kind of passive and receptive and go with the flow so I don't think
0: that's exactly true and, and this is I think an interesting thing I think what was- what happen is everybody wants to know which is better spring or winter yeah. and everyone is waiting to hear what everyone else says <laughs> and then at some point somebody kind of burps and then somebody <laughs> thinks they're saying winter and then they say what and then everyone else is uh, winter. <laughs> and then everyone has decided it's winter. So I don't think yeah. it's true that if, if ah, I that see. no one would speak. I think random perturbations <laughs> that could happen. in I the initial that. conditions could lead to everyone coming to a position. Yeah. But it it wouldn't be a good No, position. I agree
1: with that. I shouldn't have said it's impossible, yeah. but I agree with you it would be suboptimal. But let so me So what should be happening? What should be happening is that everybody is doing a kind of combination of speaking and listening. And like, oh, and tolerating some disagreement, right? I think, you know, autumn is my favorite and spring is yours or whatever. And even if we disagree, fine. If not too much hangs on it, that's okay. But what I think is that what that is, is participation in a collective effort. So you're still really not on your own. I mean, the only reason you can say autumn or spring or winter or anything like that is because somebody told you that these are things. You wouldn't even know that if you didn't sort of grow up in a culture where people were talking about the seasons and having the words for them. And the idea that you've got your favorite anything – is a kind of cultural tradition. Right. What's your favorite color? What's your favorite animal? This is a game we play. It is. And so I'm is. participating in the game when they look at me and they say, how about you? And I say, okay, well, if I just sort of cop out and say, I don't know, I, what does everybody else think? I'm not holding up my part of the game, but it's a game still. It's a game that we're all playing. And let me also remind us all that there's this interesting issue in philosophy about uh testimony. Mm. You know, are you... Justified? Can you be justified in believing most of what people tell you? Because when you think about it, almost everything you believe is something you've been told by everybody else. In other words, I believe certain things in my immediate experience. You know, the sky is blue. Once I know how to use the word blue, I can see the sky is blue and I can say that. And I know uh, there's a lot of things I know firsthand thanks to the language I share with everybody else. But most of, you know, a huge amount, let me just say a huge amount of what I know that, that the earth is round. I've never really seen that with my own eyes and, and that the earth spins on its axis or that the moon has craters and mountains on it or that there's a country called Russia and there's a country called China. Right, can going say
0: that there is a place called Boise, Idaho. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I mean, there's a ton of that kind of knowledge that I just take for granted as given. Now, why why do I believe any of that? If I grew up in a different culture at a different time, I would believe in gods I would believe in magic. I wouldn't believe, you know, all the things I believe. So all of that is a cultural inheritance that I've absorbed from the world I'm in. So there's a total epistemic dependency that we have on each other. Uh, it's just another thing. But I don't want to get us deflected from—
0: Although, I, yeah, I do think there's a—if you look at it in a certain way, we can feel like we're just cells of a superorganism.
1: Yeah, that we kind of are. You know? yeah.
0: That, yeah, that the whole species is cognizing things. And each individual person contributes to it sort of the way a sensory cell in your kidney <laughs> contributes to the functioning of your urinary system. But it only urinates because it's part of a thing. Right. We only <laughs> absorb knowledge and, you know, metabolize that input into true beliefs because we're part of a vastly complicated superorganism. Well,
1: that's sort of right. I also think we're individuals, and that's important too. So, But I think we're individuals against this background. So yeah.
0: so here's, here's, I guess... Like, we started off with a sort of um, broad-stroke caricatured question, like, do we need people zero or <laughs> yeah. a lot, yeah. right? you know? And maybe as the clouds are receding, what's being revealed is a, is maybe a more interesting question, which is, where should we put the dimmer between self-reliance and other reliance? Yeah, Because, you know, there yeah. are some cultures where saying that i have an idea that other people don't have they'll literally smack you <laughs> they'll literally yep. be like yep. would you shut up uh-huh. that's that's stupid don't you look silly yeah look at everybody look are they do they think that no well you should stop thinking it because they're thinking it and what's your problem yeah yeah <laughs> you know and those cultures i think seem suboptimal bad so how do we decide, where should we put the dimmer switch between individuality and communal- com- 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 communality? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. And I, I think it's funny, because I grew up in
1: a Western, I mean, Western in the United States, geographic sense of Western, Wyoming, right. Protestant, every man for himself, rugged individual culture, and I absorbed a lot of that. So I'm it's funny, I'm towing the line about how we are all totally dependent on each other. But um, my instincts really do go in the direction of feeling like uh, you often are radically alone with certain matters about your life, your death, your beliefs, your opinions, and so on. What I'm not crazy about in the Emerson essay is what strikes me as a sort of smug confidence in the self-reliance of the individual. What I think is that self-reliance is often necessary
0: but it's frightening. Oh, I, I have an aphorism about optimism and pessimism, which I think is related. Oh, good. Um, and my aphorism is you'd have to be wildly optimistic to ever say something pessimistic. Ah. And what I mean by that is if you think that everybody uh, is sort of ah. up to their eyeballs in anxiety, ah. that might prompt you. And I think I do this that would prompt you to try and say sunny and optimistic things. Yes. Because you feel like one more drop of anxiety (laughs) and they will drown. Um, (laughs) Oh, that's right. Well, if you think you can be pessimistic, you must think people can kind of deal with it. I Um, think that's right. And and that's kind of how I view Emerson, I think. I think, like, his Uh, son died. Like, he had been through a lot of rough stuff. His, his, um, His country was being torn apart by the issue of slavery. Interesting. And I think his... His attempt to instill confidence is he's sort of trying to cheer on people who are in a rather rough situation and could easily give up. That's really interesting because
1: I think then he and I are like antipodes, if that's that's how you say that word. (laughs) Uh, Because I think I actually have a kind of optimistic outlook, and people have told me this. I sort of often feel like compared to some friends of mine, I've got a sunny, optimistic kind of view about things in the long run. Which is probably why I can afford to think some pretty pessimistic thoughts because I don't really feel like it's that dangerous really, or threatening because I think uh, yeah, so he so Emerson and I may be really opposite types.
0: Um, that's yeah, that's I, very I feel that I need to put my shoulder against a door uh, of anxiety and depression, wow, so therefore I need to believe things that are relatively sunny. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you and I may, I see, so you're a little bit more. Yeah, Maybe we are also, the, our listeners can write in as to whether that <laughs> word is pronounced antipodes or antipodes. Right. <laughs> we don't know. have never been sure. Um, have you? Maybe yeah. on the North Pole it's pronounced antipodes, <laughs> on the South Pole it's pronounced antipodes. Um, it's like Appalachian and Appalachian. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, okay, well, I, I don't mean that <laughs> that has sort of made it impossible to talk in a way that I didn't want it to. But um, <laughs> I would like to kind of know, so you said being radically alone is in certain cases true. Yeah. And you mentioned death and love. Is that one case where you're radically alone just with sure. another yeah. lover? Big decisions. Um, big yeah. decisions. Um, uh. Well, I think you're closer to Emerson than you say <laughs> because oh. I think he's talking about big decisions. I don't think he's denying that, you know, if you want to get... um. You're wood chopped. You probably (laughs) need to go to the wood chopper. Um, How are you radically alone in the sense of big decisions?
1: Um, Nobody can decide for you. Why is that? um, Well, give me an example. Yeah, because nobody's quite in your shoes. I mean, that's what I think. So let me also be clear. Uh, It's not that I reject everything Emerson says. I think half of what he says is right and half of it is wrong. And a lot of it is the tone I don't like. You don't like the tone. uh, Sir, I don't care for
0: your tone. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's right. I would tell him if I could meet him. Yes. So now we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back to continue the discussion of self-reliance. And we're back. You know, Nietzsche said about Emerson, he'd apparently read some Emerson. I don't know if it was was translated into German. Maybe it was. I don't know that Nietzsche read English. But uh, he said, in Emerson, America has lost a philosopher. What does that mean? I think it means he could have been a philosopher if he had maybe had a better education or something.
0: (laughs) I always thought Nietzsche was like off the hook crazy for Emerson. And I always sort of viewed Nietzsche as sort of like German uh, Emersonianism.
1: Well, what I think is he admired the freedom you have in the essay form, in the genre of the essay, because Nietzsche was trying to break out of this very conservative, strict philological sort of education by writing essayistic... Well, what is it
0: that's good in Nietzsche that's not also in Emerson? Oh. (laughs) Because there's plenty of bad stuff in Nietzsche that's not in Emerson. Well, that's true. I have to say, I confess, I don't know Emerson
1: well enough to make a real comparison, But but what I like about this remark is that I think what Nietzsche is saying is that Emerson was a kind of, well, I could be wrong about this. Here's what I think. Some experts can call in and write in and tell me I'm wrong about this. I hear in that comment Nietzsche saying, uh, as a philosopher, he had great potential.
0: Okay. He he considers him to be a liar. Yeah, the kid had great talent, and it's too bad he didn't have. Yeah. Stanley Stanley Cavell does say, uh, at some point, everyone gets around to condescending to Emerson. As part of Stanley Cavell's, let's Let's like Emerson again. <laughs> what I've read is that Europeans generally don't, are sort of scratching their heads
1: about Americans being so in love with Emerson. They don't see the appeal at all. Interesting. And I, I've never developed a taste for it. He's right about a lot of things. I mean, there is a kind of individualism which is right
0: and healthy and good, and you sometimes do need a boost and sort of well, bo- but I'd like believe to know yourself. what yeah. What is good about that? Because, yeah. you know, plenty of people when they live their lives on their own terms and this was something you were worried about yeah completely mess it up <laughs> like plenty of people like when i look at them and, and i say like that person has let's take uh, love but that's not the only example yeah. i say that person has decided to spend their lives with somebody who's just awful right yeah and it's like the closest you can get in our society to like living in a dictatorial state they have (laughs) voluntarily joined a dictatorial state where they are the one uh downtrodden uh party member (laughs) and their spouse is the dictator and it's just like why did you do that And, and i can't help but thinking well clearly what would have been better for them would be either to have me decide who they should marry or a (laughs) council of people who cared about them to decide or the Lubavitcher rebbe to decide yeah that just like in terms of life outcome deciding for themselves works terribly their judgment is crappy and they just shouldn't do it <laughs>
1: well but you have to see I mean Why? in those Why? cases Why well in those cases there's just nobody else who can actually give you
0: any better advice no that's not true Taylor just get think of a concrete example of someone who's going out with someone which is terrible oh I know a- Counsel of their friends. No, but what I mean. could easily give them better advice. Well,
1: they could give them objectively better advice. Yes. But
0: it's not going to be the
1: case that that person will be better off by handing over the decision to somebody else other than themselves. Why? Well, often because the reason you will stick with a commitment is because you're the one who made it. So what I've found out by having kids is that when kids are picking out clothes or toys or having to make a choice, um, even if they're making a pretty bad choice, like this toy is obviously inferior to that one of these clothes or whatever, uh, if they're the ones who make the choice, and this is from a very early age, if they feel like they've got a little bit of autonomy in choosing the thing, they will be totally attached to it because they're invested in it. You gain a lot by letting people make their own decisions because they're invested in them from the beginning. Now, it may turn out
0: badly. But in in so many cultures in the world, and I'm going to just hazard a guess and say most, Yeah. Your family decides who you get married and what your job is going to be.
1: Uh, Yeah, but it's, I mean, I don't know much about this, but here's my hypothesis. My hypothesis is that if you grow up in a culture like that, there's a closer relation to what your family is telling you to do and how you yourself are actually motivated to do it. So in other words, you don't start out with an antagonism or a difference between my family members are telling me this and here's what I think. I mean, you can have those conflicts, obviously. But in a very individualistic culture like ours there's almost a priori a conflict right between me making
0: a decision and somebody else telling me but i guess if we were gonna um build a culture from scratch yeah like like nietzsche sometimes says you philosophers stop you need to start building the culture of the future Uh so let's let's take the man at his word and build the culture of the future how individualistic should we make it should it be the kind of culture where people feel this Anxiety to pick a a, a a a romantic partner and a and a uh, job, or should it be one where they get together with their families and people who care about them and and reliable internet sources like podcasts <laughs> I, and <laughs> and decide that way. <laughs> I think I hate to say this, but I object to the thought experiment
1: because there oh, there is no such thing as building a culture from scratch. You're always repairing the
0: ship that you're already on. Okay, so supposing we're repairing this one, and look, there's a lot of people who say, and I don't know how to. Evaluated. That's why I find this interesting. A lot of yeah. people say, well, look at all the ecological devastation sure. that Western individualism has caused. Clearly, yeah, yeah. our culture is too individualistic. Mm. Let's make it less individualistic. And here's a way to make it less individualistic. We should say to people, stop trying to find your soulmate. Convene a council of your family and people who care about you, (laughs) and they'll set you up on a series of dates with people that they've picked. This is basically how they do it in in, uh, Chabad Lubavitch. Uh, They'll set you up on a a couple of dates, and then you pick, and that's how you do it. (laughs) Like, we could do that, we could do that. I think if you've already
1: got got the momentum of that kind of tradition behind you and you've grown up in it, you can Mm. maybe be at home in that world. But if you're thrown into it from a very individualistic sort of background, It's going to be very little chance of it's working out.
0: But you could use your soapbox as a Barnard professor to fulminate (laughs) against individualism.
1: Here's what I think. To the extent that I'll play along at all in this kind of utopian sort of uh, experiment, what I think is that it's not uh, either or. That there are domains of life in which we we need to do is cultivate more individualism, like in terms of gender expression, Mm -hmm. for example. That's the big one now. I think it's great that people feel like they can dress however they want, And they can ignore what people have been saying, you know, for a long time in most of the world and so on about how you have to dress like this, you have to dress like that. You can't have a nose ring, whatever. Uh, That's great. And then there's other domains like about destroying the environment (laughs) where we have to be much more collective and cooperative and so on. So I think it's task specific. Hmm. And I think there's not necessarily contradiction between promoting more radically individualistic forms of self-expression and lifestyle and individual life choices. so that this kind of private sphere can blossom without much interference and for individuals to make up their own minds about them. But I think life is always going to be a kind of struggle between autonomy and attachment. I think
0: there's always a bit of That sounds Aristotelian. That sounds cool. Because I'm just thinking like um, like, this is a little utopian. It's a utopian thought experiment. But imagine we were talking to a sincere Ron DeSantis. Mm Mm-hmm. One who actually believed things rather than saying <laughs> things in order to achieve political power. See, this is why I don't like and, these
1: science fiction examples. Yeah, these science,
0: these yeah. wild science. Why don't we talk about yeah. something realistic no, like okay. that? We might be brains in a bag. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I, I'm just. I'm going to say sincere social conservatives do exist, mm. and they would make an argument something along these lines that, like, yeah, gender is not a real thing but if we expect people to come up with what their gender is going to be we'll do too much damage in terms of just giving people an anxiety provoking difficult task than the damage that's done by forcing people to adhere to the gender that ah, they're assigned at birth now, is... now i don't think this argument is true i, mm. I i'm a for trans rights, and and I think this is bad. Yeah. But I'm sort of curious how one. What are the rules for adjudicating stuff like this? What? um And I I can think of another example, which yeah. is, I think the Jewish tradition, um which is you know given a di- a divine sanction, but <laughs> the Jewish tradition of Sabbath observance uh-huh. has a lot to say for it, oh, because yeah, what it means yeah, is yeah. this community is going to spend one out of seven days thinking about stuff other than hustling. Yeah. And I think that's worthwhile. Yeah, definitely. However, it is enforced coercively. Yeah. And you almost feel like it has to be enforced coercively because otherwise everybody who's having a hard time making ends meet in their business is going to be like, I'm going to have to work on Saturday. I just can't do it. Yeah. And, and if I'm worried that the guy next door to me, the guy with the pencil store next door to me is working on Saturday then I'm going to feel I have to do it too. So it's almost like in order for individual options, maybe McIntyre says something like this, in order for individual options to even exist, the community has to enforce some sort of pretty thick norms. What do you think of that argument?
1: I really don't know what to say about this. I mean, I I wish my
0: upbringing had had a little bit more
1: of that kind of enforced structure because mine had very little. I mean, we would eat dinner in front of the TV with the TV on.
0: Right. How about you wore clothes? I mean, oh, you had yeah. some. It's yeah. <laughs> true.
1: <laughs> there wasn't any alternative beckoning at calling out to me about that particular one. But um, right, right. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of coercive norms operating on me and everybody I grew up with. But there was this individualism about structure of time, and you know, you're sitting in your room reading or listening to music or. There wasn't a family meal, you know, very often. And so I think that would have been nice. Um, I don't know. Who knows how to balance these things? Right.
0: Right. I mean, I guess it would violate Barnard's human experimentation protocols to create (laughs) one family group and do it one way and one family group and do it another way and come back 15 years later and, and... interview there's no
1: controlling these things i mean you can't study people in very objective ways without mistreating them
0: i do think natural experiments do show up yes and i think there's more i don't know if this is true i I won't say i think it i suspect it's true but i'll put it forward as a hypothesis Mm. and that is there are more mood disorders in highly atomized individualistic societies i'm willing to believe
1: that definitely
0: yes and uh i've heard people say that you know Uh, Cultures with big,
1: sort of extended families and sort of clans, they have much less incidents of depression and so on. I completely believe that. It goes back to my other point about how people need social contact. I mean, they physically need it. They psychologically need it. And when you've got people around, yeah, it's sort of... Not that people can't be depressed, but it does keep you buoyant and so on. Yeah, I I feel very conflicted about that because I didn't have that kind of social environment and I felt isolated, but I got very used to solitude and I could cope with it better. I did... I, I find family gatherings with very many people in the same room really fatiguing and taxing. And I always want to kind of slink away and find some quiet space and be away from people because it's too much. Mm-hmm. It's like overloads my brain. So. Mm-hmm. Part of the self-reliance stuff in Emerson I quite like and the part I I really like is when he talks about the resilience of character mm-hmm. do you remember that in the essay no
0: do you have it handy why don't you read some more I Emerson?
1: do and I actually wanted to read you a few more sentences from yeah, read some this, more. because this I like and it's a little bit different point
0: mm-hmm.
1: I mean it's in tune with the rest of what he's talking about self reliance but the idea is that your character is resilient you can't control it mm-hmm. In other words, I like this, let yourself be yourself Mm -hmm. because you can't be anybody else. You know this wonderful line of Oscar Wilde's, Mm -mm. you might as well be yourself, everybody
0: else is taken. Uh, That's a good one. Oh, that's very much like Reb Zusia, who said that he was afraid that when he was face to face with his creator after his death, that his creator would not say, why weren't you Abraham? He would say, why weren't you Zusia?"
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, right, right. So I do like that. There's some kind of being true to yourself. And what is that? What is being true to yourself? I don't think it means being confident that you're right or that all your deepest intuitions will turn out to be true or anything like that. What I think it means is, as you were saying a little bit ago, not being sort of slavishly dependent on other, what other people think that you have to follow instead of lead a conversation or that you have to follow opinions rather than having your own opinion or that you have to emulate other people's talents Uh, and you should cultivate your own. There's a lot of that which is really healthy, good advice and is encouraging to people to sort of let themselves be themselves. If you're really feeling people are suffering from this coercion to conform and not be themselves, they might need a little boost like this. Maybe Emerson's trying to give it to them. But what I think he's really right about is that in a way you can't fight it. You can't really alter your basic character through an effort of will. And what he says uh, about halfway through this essay He says, I suppose no man can violate his nature. All the sallies of his will are rounded in by the law of his being, as the inequalities of Andes and Himalaya are insignificant in the curve of the sphere. Mm -hmm. Nor does it matter how you gauge and try him. A character is like an acrostic or an Alexandrian stanza. Read it forward, backward, or across. It still spells the same thing. That I like. That is really, I think, deep and good and true um i i believe although there's a lot of psychological literature i gather that purports to speak against this like there's no such thing as sort of enduring character and the the argument is something like you throw people into different situations and they will start acting completely differently because what we call character is very fragile. It's circumstance-dependent. You know, people will start stabbing each other in the back, or, you know, the prison experiment mm-hmm, at Stanford, mm-hmm. where they divide into prisoners and guards, and soon sure enough, the guards become abusive, and the prisoners are, you know. Right, right, um, right. Anyway, but in spite of that, whatever truth there is in that, I think there's also something actually right about, from a very early age, you have a kind of disposition and style and character your personality and you're unique and you can know somebody at a very early age and then meet them much later in life and it's still the same person yeah. you know you still think yep that's yeah, you yeah i
0: think you're right i certainly think when i look at um like short stories i wrote when i was 11 yeah. I seem to have been obsessed with the same issues interesting which is weird
1: yeah yeah
0: <laughs> you know cuz i had experienced much less of what the world has to offer i just and there were only three yeah. television channels.
1: <laughs> I think if people were really so malleable, if you hadn't seen somebody for 20 years or 30 years and you met them again, they ought to be strangers, but they're not if you knew them. No, no, right. so, they're not. Yeah, they're so not, I, I like that. I think I I do love that about this. And I have to say, I really admire his language in this. Um, all the sallies of his will are rounded in by the law of his being. Ah, it's beautiful. So there you go. It is beautiful. Points to Emerson in spite of my utter- otherwise... <laughs> lack of lack of enthusiasm.
0: But I I sort of feel like you're you're an individualist against your own better judgment, maybe, maybe that you seem to feel that on the really important decisions of life, there's something genuinely worthwhile about making them yourself. Yeah, even if either, and I don't know what you're saying even if they're wrong? Yeah. Or are you saying, yeah. and they couldn't be wrong? No, I, uh,
1: what I don't like is the Emerson idea that they somehow couldn't be wrong. You're sort of, you've got a compass inside you that's sort of bound to steer you right. I mean, that, if that's not being fair to him, I don't know. But, the, but what what I think is that you cannot hand over some decisions to other people. It'll be even worse than whatever bad decision you're going to make, because it won't have been your decision. Right.
0: But yeah, that's what but I think. But you uh, feel like... Yeah. Earlier in our conversation, you said, why should I think that just because it's my idea, I should listen to it? Yeah. Um, So which is it? (laughs) It's both.
1: It's both. In other words, I think a big dose of self-doubt is very healthy. Mm -hmm. So keep your ears open. (laughs) Ask around. Read. you got to really take seriously the idea that you could get it wrong and screw it up. And at the end of the day, the decision is all on you. And a lot is riding on it. So be very careful and very thoughtful and God help you. Right Here's the the Protestant individualism. I didn't grow up with any religious education or belief, but there's a Protestant element of this, which is, uh, I call it Protestant.
0: It's just this, at the end of the day, God help you. Right. I think that's cool because part of it to me is I think the person who says, honestly, I'm just a node in a network, yeah. and I'm just going to kind of average what my neighbor on my right says and what my neighbor on my, <laughs> my left says. Yeah, no, I don't think that that's it's good. Sort of like that's not good. That whole network yeah. is going to go to heaven or hell. <laughs> but that person has decided not to be a person. Yeah, decided no, that's right. I'm not advocating that. Part of a network. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm
1: advocating both of these things. You are a node in a network, and you are alone before God, if only God existed. <laughs> right. I'm like an atheist Protestant is what I am, I think. An
0: atheist Protestant, yeah. not the only one. Yeah, right. Yeah. Not the only
1: one. So, um, yeah, autonomy. See, I don't really believe there is any such thing as radical autonomy. But I think autonomy is something you can come to want and need in in the right... And you think it's worth it's worth wanting. Yeah, absolutely. Even if it's still the case that only in certain cultural or historical circumstances... Will you be able to see that it's something worth wanting? Got it. In other words, if I had grown up in ancient Egypt, I would have no idea, maybe, about what I'm now even talking about, about personal autonomy. and I wouldn't have any idea that it's a desirable thing. So I think these desirable things can emerge uh, contingently.
0: Although they do measure your good deeds against your bad deeds your good deeds versus your bad deeds in ancient egyptian afterlife oh sure yeah i mean ancient egyptian taylor carmen this is your life <laughs> actually you are <laughs> ancient egyptian I... and this has all been a dream <laughs> so, oh, okay. i thought i thought it might be yeah yeah that
1: explains a lot well have we covered the basis on self-reliance eric i think so i think so okay. i think
0: we've learned that there's a paradoxical relationship between self and other and it just makes me think, well, maybe the self is an illusion. So that's why anytime you start to think about self-reliance and others, you're going to get tied up in conceptual knots because the self doesn't really exist. Okay. I, I think it cuts
1: both ways. It's terrifying either
0: way. Terrifying it's, either way. It, this
1: may be unique so far in our topics that this one is terrifying no matter how you slice it.
0: However you slice it, whether you slice it thick or thin, it's terrifying. <laughs> but yep. also where the terror is, there is the pacifying power. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay. okay. We'll see you okay. next week. Okay. Peace out. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
1: This podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Aberhart, and edited by me, Taylor Carmen.